The places that Florida Panthers live actually provide a great ecosystem benefit to all of us, even those in the adjacent urban areas in Florida. Hello, and welcome to the From Urban to Ag podcast. I am so glad to have you here. The goal of this podcast is to answer questions consumers have about agriculture, food, environmental sciences, and natural resources, connect listeners to experts within these industries who can provide science-based information and answers, and lastly, to share the narrative of agriculture because it is broad and diverse and intriguing. In these podcast episodes, you can expect to learn about several different industries and disciplines such as swine production, agricultural communication, dairy production, agribusiness, and so much more. Thank you for listening. Now on to the episode. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. For these next several episodes of the From Urban to Ag podcast, we are going to be focused on Florida wildlife and environmental sciences. Why, you ask? Great question. As I mentioned, the podcast has come a long way in just the past few months. And as part of that, I actually received some grant funding from the University of Florida Thompson Earth Systems Institute, and that went to supporting the production of these four podcast tracks. Two of them will be on the Florida Panther, and two are discussing red tide and harmful algal blooms, so stay tuned for those. For this podcast episode, we will be discussing the Florida Panther and answering some commonly asked questions about them. To speak with us on this topic, we have Amber Crooks, who is the Environmental Policy Manager for the Conservancy of Southwest Florida, and specializes in wildlife policy. As you listen to the episode, if you end up having additional questions or want more information, be sure to go to my website, www.fromurbantoag.com slash podcast to find show notes and additional resources for each episode. Now let's get into the podcast. So speaking with us this morning, we have the Environmental Policy Manager for the Conservancy of Southwest Florida, Miss Amber Crooks. Hello. Amber, I am so, so happy to have you with us today on a very kind of unique topic. So will you first start off just by sharing kind of what your current position is and how you got to where you are today and how on earth you got started working with Florida panthers and Florida wildlife? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I, as you mentioned, my current position um, is environmental policy manager at the Conservancy of Southwest Florida. We're based out of Naples, Florida. So uh, pretty far south there on the tip, um, right before you get into the Everglades. I actually started college uh, in a different degree path, but switched to political science. And uh, although I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it initially, I think my parents were a little bit unsure as well what to do with a political science degree. Uh, but it ended up actually being a perfect match for me in pursuing my career in environmental advocacy. And although I wasn't born in Florida, I've actually been in Florida for most of my life. And after college, I was looking for a job and I happened to attend an Earth Day celebration where the Conservancy was tabling as an exhibitor. And I was just so impressed that I decided I, I have to work there. So I actually literally applied to every job that opened up, even those that I was not qualified for. And um, it worked out because I found my fit there in the policy department. And I'm about to celebrate my 13th year anniversary working at the Conservancy. Um, you also kind of asked how I got interested in panthers or wildlife specifically. 
And uh, thinking back uh, in college, I was actually my school's president of the Jane Goodall International Club called Roots and Shoots. And of course, her focus on animals and wildlife, uh, that led us to do a lot of activities back then that helped champion conservation of endangered species. And when I started at the Conservancy, I was assigned wildlife issues. And so in my tenure there, I've actually had the ability to advocate for protection of different Florida species that are as diverse as this ancient small tooth sawfish uh, to controversial species like the Florida panther, fascinating species like haunted bat, which is the largest bat in Florida, beautiful crested caracara, and like everything in between. Uh, but the Florida panther is probably nearest and dearest to my heart uh, personally. And I feel that if we can save the Florida panther, which I regard as a symbol of wild Florida, if we can save the places, the flora and the fauna uh, that are in Florida panther habitat, we can save the places that make Florida unique. Wow. You, first of all, I love how passionate you clearly are <laughs> on your career and the animals you work with and work to protect. And you named some animals that I have definitely never heard of, but I guess I will have to save those for maybe a future episode because I know I have so many questions now. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a lot of different species here. We're a very biodiverse place of the world, actually. I believe it. You know, since moving to Florida myself, I people ask me, what is the biggest difference between here and California? And I say it is all the wildlife. There are so many different bugs and animals and species here that it's it's great, it's interesting, and it's kind of scary sometimes. <laughs> yeah, um, I know one of your Facebook followers had a question about different animals that we have here in Florida, and uh, I have some more thoughts to share in that when the time's right. Okay, um, good. Yeah. I look forward to getting into that. I know the Facebook members had some really interesting questions, but I always like to use this time to kind of give an overview to listeners, you know, people that aren't at all familiar with the topic. So can you tell us really quickly, what are some of the challenges facing Florida Panthers right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the number one challenge facing Florida Panthers for sure is habitat loss. Loss of the places that they live, where they den, where they are eating their prey. Um, you often hear news of them getting hit by cars. That's probably how some of the listeners might hear about Panthers hit by cars. And that's the number one cause of known mortality are these unfortunate accidents. Uh, but what they might not put together necessarily is that those are fueled by habitat loss uh, because the more that the habitat, the corridors that they use to get from one place to another are being chewed up by development, mines and new roads, the more that these animals, because they have huge home ranges, will be forced to cross roads um, and, and be subject to possibly getting hit by cars or uh, also may come into contact with other panthers and they may fight to the death actually in territorial disputes. How many panthers are killed by that cause is a little bit less known because not every panther is being tracked by biologists. And another challenge is um, a social challenge because sometimes uh, these panthers uh, rely on prey that are um, like domestic cattle or domestic animals. And then there's also challenges for panthers on the health side, and that may also be fueled by habitat loss. Um, they have chronically suffered in the past from low genetic diversity, which just means there's too few in the population to, to really uh, be robust um, in their health. 
And there actually was an effort back in the 1990s to boost their genetics, and it was successful. But if the panther population remains below the level that is needed for recovery, this is going to continue to be a problem. And there's also a new challenge on the horizon, making matters worse, which is a new mystery disease or disorder affecting panthers that biologists are only beginning to just understand. And at at most, there are only about 230 panthers left alive today. And their ranges used to be actually the whole Southeast United States, from Louisiana up to the Carolinas through Florida. And now in current times, their range is just restricted to a small area, pretty much small area of South Florida for the most part. So habitat loss um, touches on each of these things that I mentioned. Um, That's probably the number one challenge facing the Florida panther. Well, it sounds like there's a multitude of challenges that definitely make it a complex issue. I just had a couple follow-up questions on some of those. So when you're talking about the social challenge, so you meant, mentioned that sometimes it's domestic domesticated animals that the panthers prey upon. So how do you work? I'm assuming it's with agriculturalists and farmers that you might have to have those dialogues with. So what is their reaction when, with the presence of the Florida panthers, how do farmers and agriculturalists react? Mm-hmm. We actually have a program at the Conservancy of Southwest Florida that's um, designed to help affected people who have had a loss of one of their animals to panther. And in working with some of these people, it's definitely a mixed bag. I mean, you have some people who are mad, um, threatening violence against the panther. You have some people who understand that they are living in panther habitat. Maybe they're newer to the area, or maybe they've been there for a while, and they just understand that, that the panther is a part of the ecosystem and is a natural predator in the area. And uh, you have some people who are willing to do things to sort of protect their animals. And you have some people who may be a little bit harder, um, not wanting to do as many things. And that's where our program comes into place, though. We, we have a part of our program that actually helps people build and pay for uh, pen enclosures. Uh, tall fences just won't work. Panthers can jump very high, um, actually. And so um, we, we help uh, residents build pen enclosures for their hobby, domestic livestock like goats. A lot of people in the area keep goats. Um, and they regard them as pets a lot of time. So we're not trying to keep, you know, people's pets safe from predators, whether it's a panther or any other native wildlife. Uh, we also have a part of our program that provides compensation to ranchers. You know, some of the folks aren't able to keep, you know, a large herd of cows in a secure barn or pen enclosure. They're free ranging and sometimes, you know, they have a huge, um, um, you know, a large amount in their herd. Um, so in those cases where they're just not able to keep them secured um, and other kinds of methods to minimize predator um, presence on their land have not worked, uh, we're able to provide them actually a direct compensation for their loss. And there's an application process you can find on our webpage, conservancy.org. But in in these efforts, we're trying to promote coexistence between our native wildlife and folks that are living on the landscape and, and maybe have depredations of their animals due to panthers or other wildlife. That seems like a fantastic program. I will definitely have to, I'll try to include a link to your website in case people want to look further into that. That's very, very interesting. My other question based on the challenges you mentioned, just one other kind of clarification. 
You mentioned how with habitat loss, you know, urban development and one of the dangers to panthers is they get hit on the roadways, but that has to do with habitat loss. So when you know that there is new development happening, when people are looking at developing in Florida, maybe in an area that is common for Florida panthers, do they have to acknowledge the fact that they are taking up the habitat of Florida panthers or how does that work? Yeah, typically a development is going to go through a multi-tiered permitting process with with many different agencies. But unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily mean that the um, the important habitat on site is going to be preserved. A lot of times we're seeing permits awarded that chew up and eat up very important key areas for the Florida panther. Um, and that's kind of where politics come into play. You know, it's, it's very tough for agencies to say no or to push back on development, uh, we found. Uh, but that's where we come into play. You know, that's our role to try and advocate for the wildlife or the the water, the land, the wildlife, all the resources that are important in terms of the environment. And uh, we will try to work directly with the agencies to promote the best available science, promote what we know about what panthers need for recovery, and try to influence their their decisions on development. Typically, a development, if it does get permitted, it will need to uh, put into place some mitigation area or compensation area, just meaning that if they do develop or impact part of panther habitat, they will need to provide another area elsewhere that'll be in preservation, which is a good thing. However, the panther uses so much of this area already. So even if you're placing some area into to conservation, you're still losing a part of the area that this panther desperately needs to even survive at its current level. So it's a bit of a shell game um, ultimately. And so um, another thing that we work on besides commenting and advocating on individual developments is trying to work with the agencies that they have better rules and protections overall. And and that is actually something that I work on very closely. I'm wondering now if you this is getting a little off track from the scope of the questions, but uh, mentioning how if they have to, you know, develop habitat that used to be for the panther, they have to then allocate some somewhere else for their use. Um, how much space does a panther need to not have to do, deal with like territorial disputes? Yeah, um, the the panther actually is a very wide ranging species. They have large um, home ranges and and. They do overlap to some extent naturally, but uh, we're finding that the, the density of panthers, you know, as measured by different scientific studies is actually increasing. These panthers are getting packed in a smaller area because we've been losing so much habitat over the decades. Um, and each uh, male panther may use up to 250 square miles. Um, females are have a bit smaller of a home range, I believe 75 square miles for the females. And again, they do overlap, but um, you can kind of get the scope of and scale of how much habitat would be needed. We're only at 230 maximum panthers at this time. And in order to recover, to, to feel confident that the panther won't get extinct, we'll need well over 700 panthers. And, and it's not just the numbers game. It means that we would need the amount of habitat necessary to support that number of panthers. And so that means actually saving their habitat where they're at now, but also saving habitat where they're going to spread out to in the future and providing the corridors and linkages across the landscape so that they can get there without encountering vehicles 
and people and their pets and their livestock. And so you can imagine it's a, it's a big conservation effort to try and save that many acres of habitat when, you know, Florida is becoming the third most populous state in the nation. A lot of people move into paradise and trying to balance the two. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it definitely sounds like a very complex issue. And it's going to be interesting to see some of the movements in the future of how you handle navigating the, like you said, urban encroachment and the increasing population with the need for that, not just the numbers of panthers, but also the space for them to thrive. So moving into one of our next questions, what would you consider when you look at your job in conservancy and working with wildlife and specifically the Florida panther, what is the most rewarding part of your job? Yeah, um, the most rewarding part of my job, uh, you know, I'm reflecting a little bit uh, is knowing that through the work um, that I'm putting forward and the work of my colleagues as well, that uh, we are making a difference in protecting our planet. You know, sometimes in our line of work, there's not a clear win. You know, sometimes you win the battle, but lose the war. You know, sometimes there's a bad development that you could take all the way to court to try and fight because it's just in an awful place for panthers or whatever species or natural resource. And, you know, sometimes it's still gets built. Uh, but I feel good that we're, we're on the side of wildlife. We're on the side of science. You know, we use the best science available, try and influence decision makers. Um, and we pour our blood, sweat, and tears into just trying to hold the line. <laughs> um, but I do feel good about what we're doing. Uh, Conservancy of Southwest Florida, our mission uh, actually has mul multiple approaches to try and protect our, our water, wildlife, land, and future, and that includes not just what I'm doing on the policy realm, working with decision makers and trying to get into place the necessary laws and protections, but we also have an environmental education department that tries to educate from kindergarten all the way up to senior age, just why the env environment is so important. We have scientific researchers who are researching everything from the Burmese python to the sea turtles, and then actually we have a um, rehabilitation site for injured wildlife. So we're kind of hitting on all of the important necessary components to protect our, our regional wildlife. And I feel, I feel good to be part of that, particularly in the policy department where uh, we're, to me, kind of the rubber hits the road in terms of getting those protective laws and protections into place. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you brought up the fact that one of the programs is education and starting to get that information out at an early age. And I think so many different, you know, contentious and controversial issues that are facing that we're facing as a society today, um, especially in the realm of natural resources, environmental sciences, agriculture, it all kind of comes back to that education component and just sharing information and making it easily accessible so people can understand the broad scope of the issues facing our industries. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and and we try to bring that information also to the decision makers, whether it be a legislator or uh, elected city council person, um, or even sometimes the the folks that work at the agencies, uh, like the wildlife agencies. You, sometimes they need to be reminded of what the law says, or in some cases they may not. Uh, you know, at the city council, new a new person that's just elected. They may not know an awful lot about water quality or about a particular species. And so we try to bring to them the information so they can make the best decisions possible. Yes. 
that sounds like a very rewarding job indeed. <laughs> so I think the last general question before we get into the questions from our Facebook members uh, is if you can tell an urban consumer one thing about Florida Panthers, what would it be? Yeah, thinking from the perspective of a of a urban consumer, um, you know, Florida Panthers—they're unique to our region, and but some people may not ever travel, you know, to to recreate or hike in their habitat. Uh, but I think it's important to know that the places that Florida Panthers live actually provide a great benefit, an ecosystem benefit, to all of us, even those in the adjacent urban areas in Florida. Like, for example. Uh, Panther habitat, if it's left undeveloped, actually is an area where our drinking water aquifers can get recharged by rainfall. If there's development there, there's less chance for the drinking water aquifer to get recharged. Likewise, the Florida panther habitat that's undeveloped can also um, provide an area where floodwaters can settle. So if we have a big storm, you know, some of the urban areas may receive less flood if we have the natural areas where those waters can be retained. And, you know, sometimes panthers get a bad rap because of being an apex predator, uh, but their habitat is very valuable to humans in ways that are important to all of us. Perfect. So moving into the Facebook questions, we had a lot of very interesting questions that I also am curious to know the answers to. So first and foremost, what color are they? How big do they get? And what do they eat? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. This When I saw uh, that folks had a question about the color, I, I definitely want to dispel a rumor. Um, contrary to some beliefs, there are actually no black Florida Panthers. Um, I, I've heard this often from, the, from members of the public about seeing uh, black Panthers and um, Florida panthers actually look very similar to the western cougar or mountain lion. In fact, they're cousins. So if you get a picture in your mind of a, of a mountain lion out west, that's very uh, practically what a Florida panther looks like. They're a tawny brown color. But interestingly, uh, when they're only kittens, they, they have spots. And the spots actually fade away as they get older. And when they're, when they're full grown, the male panthers... Uh, can actually get pretty beefy, um, can get up to about 160 pounds. Um, the females, of course, are smaller, and uh, they're about six feet or so from nose to tip. And if you're ever hiking or in the field you, and you see a track, you know, if you confirm it's a feline track, you can kind of tell by the size, whether it's a house cat, a bobcat, or a panther based on the size. And uh, they also asked about the diet, and panthers are carnivores, and the natural prey of a panther would include mainly white-tailed deer and other small mammals like raccoons. Uh, but they also like to eat invasive wild hogs that we have here in Florida, so they do a, they do a good job on on trying to uh, remove those hogs that have become invasive. Uh, they also, like I mentioned before, occasionally do opportunity. Uh, in an opportunistic way, eat domestic animals like uh, calves, young cows, um, or even like pet goats. That's common uh, in some areas. And as I mentioned before, that can create conflict, but we do have our program in place to try and 
assist. Uh, but sometimes when they investigate the depredation or the loss of a of a calf or a goat to uh, particularly the goat, sometimes it's not just a, a panther that's a culprit. They've actually confirmed um, other animals can take goats. So not always the panther's fault. Sometimes uh, the culprit is a bobcat or even feral dogs uh, we've seen. <laughs> so see, I was waiting. I was waiting for you to say alligators. <laughs> <laughs> we've got alligators too, um, but you know, I was surprised myself that quite a few cases end up being feral dogs. Um, but panthers as well. So that's why we've got our program though, because panthers are endangered, and we want to particularly. Um, create coexistence attitudes towards panthers um, because unfortunately there there has been cases where there's been tension between people and panthers on this issue of the cows or other animals um, getting taken by the panther and um, unfortunately we do have several cases of panthers being illegally shot and many of those are unsolved yeah i can I can only imagine the difficult relationship to navigate that with the farmer wanting to, you know, protect their livelihood, but having this species that also needs protection. I do not envy your job of having to navigate that difficult balance between the two. But thank you for your answers. I am, as you've been talking, I'm trying to picture the only, you know, feline I've ever seen up close is a house cat. So now I'm trying to picture a house cat that is six foot long. (laughs) But... Yes, they're they're a big animal, and um, of course, our work is just um, you know part of a multi-agency, uh, multi-organization effort, particularly on the coexistence part. The Conservancy has our program, but we there are others that also have similar programs, like Defenders of Wildlife. We work very closely with them on the pen builds, and then also the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They have a program that also works with ranchers similar to our program um, in a way that help um, compensate loss for ranchers. So in part, it's these programs, but in part, it's also um, continuing to protect their habitat, um, minimize development, but also um, public acquisition of some of these important lands. You know, we have Big Cypress and the Panther Refuge and the Everglades National Park, major chunks of area that are in public ownership. Um, but we do need more. And we have some ability in the state of Florida to direct funds to preserve these areas in public ownership and into perpetuity. And that would be another thing that's needed to try and protect these areas and provide a lot of space for these panthers to exist naturally and provide natural prey for them, um, you know, where maybe they would come into less contact, uh, you know, with, with uh, these domestic sources of food. Absolutely. That's, that's the hope. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's a, it's a good goal. It's a good hope. And it's good to hear about all the different programs and the different um, support and organizations working towards this issue. The next question from our Facebook group was, do they ever attack people? Right. Yeah. Um, I saw this question and I, um, this is, a, this is also another common question. Um, obviously, as an apex predator, a large animal, I do get this question often. And there has not yet been a confirmed attack by a Florida panther in modern history. You know, going back into the 1800s, I don't think we know, um, have enough records. But in terms of modern history, we don't have a confirmed attack. 
Um, in most interactions with humans, our Florida panthers here uh, tend to avoid contact. They appear scared and, or just frankly uninterested in human activity um, for the most part. But we do know that out west, the panther's cousin, a mountain lion, there has been some unfortunate interactions with people that have included some attacks. So bottom line is, um, although we haven't had any confirmed attacks in modern history, we do still need to be vigilant when we're visiting or living in panther habitat areas. And one of the ways that we would suggest um, trying to minimize attracting panthers into your neighborhood is to try and uh, keep the outdoor pets and domestic livestock appropriately secured. So continuing to build these secure enclosures uh, is going to help. You know, if you're living in panther habitat, there, you know, you're you're going to be living in and around panthers. So um, this isn't going to make them move away completely, but it certainly could help avoid attracting them to your specific yard if you keep your pets and your neighbors do the same thing. They will hopefully stick to the natural areas and not be attracted to um, your livestock that you have on your on your parcel. I I like that you compare them to a mountain lion because I, I am from the West Coast and I know a lot of the listeners are from California or the West Coast. And the second I saw a picture of the Florida panther, that was absolutely what it reminded me of. And like you said, I think mountain lions are have a lot more instances of interactions with humans and have been definitely shining in a negative light sometimes because of that. So it's interesting to hear that the Florida Panther has not had any recorded issues like that. So that is a very interesting distinction. Well, I'm knocking on wood, you know, um, <laughs> I'm knocking on wood. Yes. Uh, we've been lucky so far. Um, but you, you just have to remain vigilant. And uh, one of the, the wildlife agency does suggest that if you do um, see a panther as you're hiking or walking or out and about, um, that you would do some of the similar things that they advise out west, which mainly is don't run and avoid you know, appearing smaller, appear larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully, you know, in the instances where people have come across uh, panthers, uh, they have skirted away or um, just sort of not been terribly interested. Um, there was a famous viral video, actually, of um, a panther on the same boardwalk as a person. And the panther was so freaked out, kind of just ran right past the person. Oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of behavior that I'm knocking on wood for. It continues. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a lot of people also that would love to see a Florida panther in person. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those people, and I know maybe that's not for everyone, uh, <laughs> but we certainly have a number of people who um, they love birding, they love wildlife viewing, and they will often go to some of our public lands here to go on a hike and the chances of seeing a bear or a panther excites them. Yeah, absolutely. That actually kind of leads well in. I'm going to skip to a question that that actually works perfectly for. And our Facebook group member asked, what other crazy animals do you have in Florida? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Florida, we have a lot of animals. Some of them are, are crazier sounding than others or what you maybe not expect. Um, and especially here in South Florida, this area is often referred to as the Amazon of North America. Um, so in addition to the Florida panther, we have bears, black bears. Um, we have bobcats um, in the water. We have manatees or called sea cows. So you can kind of get a, a visualization of, you know, this large sort of 
animal that that's uh, that's the manatee. And uh, we have sea turtles that nest on our beaches. Um, actually, in our area, we have both alligators and crocodiles. Oh boy! Interestingly, um, and we have all sorts of snakes, venomous, non-venomous. Uh, we have tortoises that um, they actually burrow deep into the ground. And we also have tiny owls that also dig burrows in the ground. So that's kind of crazy. Um, we have uh, dozens of unique bird species that, uh, like I mentioned, attract wildlife lovers from all over the world to try and see our unique bird species. And um, not only do we have all that diversity, but unfortunately, many of these animals are also endangered, meaning they're at risk of extinction if we don't take some action. Um, on the flip side, we also have a lot of invasive ex exotic species in Florida, which means that they are from other places of the world and they have um, invaded our area. Maybe they don't have the natural predators like they do back home, but um, they have kind of their population has gone crazy and they're not really supposed to be here. And one example of that is the Burmese python. And um, in many cases, they have entered the natural natural environment when people intentionally released them. They had them as pets, they got too big, and they might have released them into the environment. That's one cause. And the Burmese python population has actually grown so much that there's been widespread destruction of the environment, loss of a lot of the small mammals in our environment to these snakes eating so much. Um, and the Conservancy actually, uh, this is a big project for us in the science department. We have scientists working on python research and many of the, the snakes that they've recovered from the environment, they can be as, as long as 15 or 20 plus feet long. So these are our big snakes. <laughs> Once again, I can't even picture it. I, I is it also true? I think I heard from someone that you are allowed to hunt the Burmese python certain times of years. Is that correct? I know recently they they have had um, the python bowl. Um, I, you know, I do think that there's some specifics about how you would uh, be allowed to en engage in that kind of activity. But I know at times they have done that. This I believe they've done that in years past as well to try and eradicate um, some pythons, but the population is so large um, that that will just be a, a part of the efforts. Uh, the, thankfully, the Conservancy's research is also trying to better understand how the pythons are operating and, and actually um, their reproduction to try and get a leg up on trying to stymie the population growth. But it's certainly just like with panther, kind of on the flip side, though, we're trying to get more panthers and fewer Burmese pythons. Um, but it certainly is a quandary of an issue uh, that will take many years mm -hmm. to achieve our goals there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is hard to imagine that a python is definitely not something you're going to see on the California coast. <laughs> it's not something you I would imagine before. I would definitely categorize that as crazy animals. <laughs> yes. I, uh, yeah, that is, that is always the thing I say. The biggest difference is that Florida has so much wildlife, things you would not even imagine. My, a couple weeks ago, I went to Silver Springs on their, one of their glass bottom boat tours and mm -hmm. they had monkeys. Oh yeah. Yes. That's another, uh, we, we had a little troop of, of, um, exotic monkeys that again, either escaped or were released 
for a while in Naples. Um, so you never know in Florida, <laughs> but you know, ultimately, uh, that's that's not good to have non-native species in our environment. Uh, you know, they, like these Burmese pythons, they do take a toll on our our native wildlife. Absolutely. Well, that kind of once again leads into our very last question. If you mentioned that for both the python and these occurrences of monkeys, they might have been pets prior and then released into the environment. Do people ever own the panthers as pets? Mm. Uh, that would not be allowed uh, to have a panther as a pet. You know, they are classified as an endangered species, protected by federal law. And even if you were to, let alone remove them from, from nature, but uh, if you were to change their natural behavior or, or otherwise harm or harass them, uh, that, that, that could find you in big trouble um, with the Endangered Species Act and other laws. So mm -hmm. that would be a big no-no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's reassuring. That was all the questions we had from our Facebook group and to do an overview. Are there any parting thoughts you would want to leave listeners with or big takeaways you hope people got from this episode? Well, I hope that it's maybe inspired them to look in more uh, into our native wildlife and different animals that we have here in Florida, uh, maybe to try and find an opportunity, even if it's in an urban setting, to, to go um, check out a park, uh, maybe pay a little bit more attention to the birds um, and other wildlife they may see. Uh, and then also ultimately um, to kind of impart upon them that uh, we all can play a part in protecting our wild lands. So even if you maybe never get a chance or it's not of interest to you to go hiking out in the wilds of the Big Cypress National Preserve, that, that they may find it's still important to have these animals on our landscape and to try and promote their recovery. Um, and that one of the ways that they can do that is to participate in, in the decisions that government's making, and that could be at any level, federal, state, or probably for most of the listeners at the local level. You know, take a look at the city council agenda. Maybe take a, a closer look at what's happening in your in your neighborhood. Is there a lot of development going on? And to try and communicate with the decision makers who are supposed to represent you to enact smart growth policies. If they're developing in a place that looks like important habitat, they should hear from you. And if there are important wildlands that need to be protected to also communicate that with the decision makers. So, you know, that would be hopefully something that the listeners could could investigate further. And one way to make that easy is to join our take action emails that the Conservancy sends. And you can do that by going to conservancy.org and signing up for our, our email blasts. So we send those out whenever there's a big issue that we want people to um, send an email about. Well, perfect. It sounds like, like you said, for our listeners listening to this right now from wherever they are, there's a lot of different resources out there to gain knowledge and information on the issue, but also to advocate and take their own action in supporting the Florida Panther. Thank you very much, Amber, for speaking with us today. And I know that everyone got a lot of value out of this episode. Oh, good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of From Urban to Ag. More information and additional resources from today's episode can be found on my website, www.fromurbantoag.com. If you have any questions or comments about information presented in this episode, 
please get in touch via the contact tab on my website. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss the next one, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, have a great day. Thank you.